My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. Once see you smile again, take away that pain and them clouds that keep covering up the sun. On this episode of the Just a Mom podcast, I'm really honored and excited to be having a conversation with someone that I met about three weeks ago at the National Federation of Families Conference in Chicago. And just like me, she's just a mom. And she lives in the Ithaca, New York area. And her name is Megan Rose. Megan, welcome to the Just a Mom podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you. And I'm really glad to have you here. Uh, you've got some really interesting work that you're doing, but it's also based on your personal story. So I want to start off just by having you tell us a little bit about your family and the beginnings of your uh, foray into parenting a child with mental illness. All right. Um, well, let's see. I've got four children. They're all adult. Uh, my oldest has two daughters who live in Ithaca, which is wonderful. And I have two other daughters, each of whom have one and two boys, new little ones. And, um, and I have a son and he lives nearby in an apartment. Um, and we actually live just outside Ithaca in a town called Trumansburg on a little farm, um, you know, a hobby farm. My, my child started um, experiencing struggles with mental health in high school. Um, and looking back on it, I recognize that that was prodromal sim symptoms of serious mental illness. Those are the, you know, the precursor. And when you're dealing with someone who's a teenager and they start getting obnoxious and surly, <laughs> And not wanting to help around the house and things like that, I thought, oh, okay, well, this is uh, just part of adolescence and trying to detach from family and things like that. So we sort of wrote it off as that and expected it to, you know, get better. Um, and in fact, when they went to college, they had some trauma, and um, this was before the pandemic. And just as the pandemic was coming down, they left school. And um, we started to really see a decline. Um, you know, now that I understand the signs and uh, symptoms, we really were beginning to see a descent into psychosis, um, which was terrifying. And, I'm sure. Yeah. And um, especially during the pandemic, it was really hard to find care. Um, we ended up having to do a psychiatrist in New York City and do video um, sessions. Um, and even that was really difficult because my child could kind of hold it together for 15 minutes or 20 minutes of a session. And then they just started babbling or, you know, seeing things in the distance or just completely shutting down. So 
therapy certainly wasn't an adequate response to what was going on. And ultimately, um, we were able to take our child to the local hospital. Um, and the way we got them in voluntarily was uh, we called ahead and talked to the psychiatric in nurse who was at doing intake in the emergency room and told her the situation and really developed a conversation with her over the course of a couple of days. And she let us know what her schedule was and that she'd be there <clears throat> and she'd be expecting us. And so when we got there, our child thought they were going in for one thing and um, was willing to do it. And this nurse was a miracle worker and she sat and talked with them um, at length and ultimately said, you know, I don't think it's a concussion that you really need help with. I, I feel like there are other things going on for you. Would you be willing to get some help? And our child said yes. Mm. So that was a huge relief. I just lost it, you know, mm, and hugged right. her and cried. And, um, and after about a week, you know, 72 hours it was, I guess, our, our child decided they didn't want to be there anymore and that they were fine. Yeah. And that's when um, they were admitted over ejection and were held for almost a month, I guess. Oh, wow. And got somewhat stabilized after trying a few medications and came home and was doing better, but certainly not back to baseline. Um, baseline being, you know, who we recognized before they got sick. Sure. Um, and they were really anxious to get out of town, um, which was terrifying. <laughs> we were, at that point, um, connected with On Track New York through Syracuse, okay. and that was an incredible, positive educational experience for my husband and me. Tell us what On Track New York is. On Track New York is um, funded by the Office of Mental Health, um, and it's a wraparound uh, approach to uh, helping people with first episode psychosis in their families. And to qualify, you need to have the person needs to have been diagnosed with some kind of a psychotic uh situation and um, be between the ages of 16 and 30. Okay. And they had um, a peer, uh, a school and work support person, a psychologist, a psychiatrist who was doing their meds um, and doing, a, they also had like a family support meeting thing that my husband and I participated in weekly. Um, and you can be participate with them for a couple of years, and their model is one and done, um, meaning one psychotic break, and then it, it's you should be better, kind of. Or that okay. was their goal anyway, and it certainly didn't turn out that way for us. Mm. Um, um, and our child basically fired everybody um, 
didn't want to work with anybody. It was still teetering on, well, had some delusions. Mm -hmm. um, but my husband and I continued with the support group, and it was really helpful. Okay. Um, eventually, our child decided to go out of state um, and lasted about three weeks before we lost communication. Mm. And that was terrifying. Oh, I can't even imagine. And um, we got a call from the hospital. No, 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 that's not right. I ended up calling the apartment uh, roommate who said that our child had been acting strangely, had been grocery shopping, and would come home and put everything in the garbage as soon as he got home, and uh, was communicating telepathically with a dog in the neighborhood and riding a bike around in the middle of the night and things like that. Mm. Um, and so the roommate called for an ambulance and our son was taken to the hospital. Our child was taken to the hospital um, and was there for a month. Mm. Again. So this is the second time. <laughs> second time. For a month-long stay. Yes. And when they were discharged, they were on Haldol. Um, and I flew down to Florida, where they were, from New York, to bring them back. Um, and it was clear that, you know, stable isn't good enough, really. You know, when you're talking about recovery, it's not. It, it's a plateau but not a good enough one to live your life in. Mm. Um, and when we were waiting for our plane, I wanted some magic ticket for my child to believe me when I was telling the truth about their behavior mm. and about their situation and have it cut through the delusions. So I just sort of pulled this out of my sleeve. I said, well, maybe we could have a sacred word that when I use it, it means you're delusional and you need to trust that I'm telling you the truth. And they agreed and came up with a word. And when we got home, a child started accusing my husband of horrible things. Um, and actually called the police mm. um and before i knew they called the police i said you know i used the the secret sacred word and i said mm. that's not true it never happened and he said oh well i just called the police and they're on their way to arrest dad mm. um, wow. and when the police got to our house our child ran downstairs to the front door and said, I'm really sorry. I just got out of the hospital. I stopped taking my meds yesterday, which we didn't know. He said, I've been delusional, and I just want to take it all back. Oh, wow. And the officer said, dude, why did you get off your meds? You need, clearly need to be on your meds. And our child said, okay, I'll go take them right now. Wow. That's great. The officer was amazing. Yeah, which is not always the case. Not always the <laughs> case, you know, not all the, and, you know, we have certainly the 
unfair advantage of being white and middle class mm. um, when you come face yep. to face with an officer. Sure. Um, but the the Hal doll was a terrible fit. Okay. Uh, and our child started having intense, um, like, rigidity and inability to even like move much <laughs> uh, wow you mean they, physical rigidity yeah okay and yeah. that's a that's a a side effect of Haldol it was f- for him yeah okay um, and so he said no um, I just I just need to get through it I don't need medical attention I just need to get through it mm-hmm. And at one point, he said, I can't take it anymore. And he was, so we took him back to our local behavioral health unit, you know, called ahead. Mm -hmm. And he, again, um, agreed to hospitalization. So this was his third time. Third, okay. And they got him off the Haldol and tried, you know, confetti of different (laughs) medications for him and they held him for about four weeks and then transferred him by ambulance to a state hospital in Binghamton um where he stayed for nine more months oh wow and how far is that from where you live about an hour and 20 minutes okay nine months and it was extremely traumatizing they were amazing there they were really great except for one doctor who didn't know the case and took our child off antipsychotics because they quote didn't see psychotic mm. well and when you're taking antipsychotics that probably helps just, right think, <laughs> <you'll> think. <laughs> yeah so i didn't and they didn't mm. and our child had signed a HIPAA release, so we were able to hear everything that was going on, and it was certainly my expectation. You know, we were talking to them every week, and if mm-hmm. something upsetting came up, I would call everybody on his team. <laughs> well, that's great, though, that, that you had the ability to know what was going on, because that's not always the case. Well, no, it's, I mean, having a HIPAA release signed is really critical when your child is 18 or over, yeah. otherwise... Yeah. The only direction communication can go is one way. We can right. tell them anything and everything. Sure. And it, it really is their responsibility to listen and respond in terms of their treatment. Yeah. Um, they can't tell us what they're doing, but they certainly can take the collateral information sure. and use that as part of uh, the information they use for treatment. Sure. Um, so... When our child was taken off antipsychotics, I didn't find out about it for two weeks. Mm. And at that point, they became floridly psychotic and um, had to be restrained four different times. Mm. Um, Ended up getting in a physical fight with another person there. And when they were trying to separate them... A nurse's ankle got broken. Oh, wow. And another nurse had hair pulled out. So mm. um, the restraint was so violent that it, he hurt his back. Mm. 
Um, and then they decided maybe he should be on antipsychotics mm. again. And and what was his diagnosis at this time? Had it been yeah, the it same? Went, it went, yeah, it went from um, bipolar with psychotic features early, early on to um, schizoaffective disorder and then schizophrenia. And now it's back to schizoaffective. I think that's something to point out to the listeners is that diagnoses can change. And, and they usually do. Yeah. Depending yeah. on what's going on. Because, again, this is mental illness is an illness that you can't see. You can't do a blood test or an x-ray oh. or right. something like that and say, oh, this is what's going on. Oh. And here's what needs to happen to treat it. Right. And it, it is about the passage of time and marking behavior. Mm-hmm. So, um, schizoaffective, you know, is the the big double whammy. You know, you've you've got the schizophrenia and uh, features of bipolar disorder as well. Um, and whether or not that's a perfect diagnosis right now, the the treatment would be the same. Okay. Um, so I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um, and our child eventually at the state hospital, after we begged and begged and found a doctor who was willing and able to do it, um, was put on clozapine. Okay. Which has been considered a last resort drug for uh, treatment-resistant psychosis. Okay. Um, and the reason it's considered a last resort drug um is because it um there's a very slight risk less than half of one percent that it could uh lead to the development of um a disorder of the white blood cells um so when a person is first prescribed that they have to have blood work done every week Mm. to make sure that that's not happening um, and that goes on for, I think, six months, and then it's every two weeks, and then after a year, it's once a month. Okay. For the rest, it, the time that you're on clozapine. Okay. Um, it also has side effects. Um, they all do. Sure. Um, weight gain, um, drooling, um, and at some point, it's, you know, I can't tease out whether the isolation and um, some of the behaviors we're seeing that are very different than our child was before they got sick, um, whether that's a side effect of the medication or if it's, you know, the negative symptoms of uh, schizoaffective disorder hmm. coming through. Sure. Um, and our child has not to this point, been on a therapeutic level of clozapine based on blood uh, their levels in their blood. Okay. And that has been such a roller coaster emotionally because, you know, you want your child to be as good as they can be. Um, but we had her, after we left, um, 
after our child left the state hospital, we were working with a community um, ACT team. Okay, so what's that? Sort of assistant community treatment, ACT. Um, and they had wraparound services as well. Unfortunately, they were understaffed and they had a revolving door of psychiatrists and nobody, no psychiatrist wanted to change the medication while they were only going to be there for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. So that went on and on and on. Mm. Um, and eventually, and um, because our child at this point was, did not believe they were still sick, um, was not being compliant with medication. So we ended up getting what's called an AOT, uh, assertive outpatient treatment, which is um, ordered by a judge at at the recommendation of the psychiatrist Mm. that in order for this person to live safely in community, they need to be um, answerable for their medication and be monitored closely with the caveat that if they're found to be non-compliant, not just with medication, but where they're living, um, it, it, um, it could be as much as who's taking care of their money situation. You know, it, it varies depending on the case. But for us, it was really just about medication compliance. Um, and so the, again, the blood levels are tested and that's how they can tell whether the person is being compliant with their medication. Mm. Um, and that's been going on. It was first established as a, a year and then with the possibility of it being extended and it's been extended twice. Okay. Um, six months at a time. Um, so do you have to go to court every time and meet with the we, judge? Or? We don't. We don't. Um, but our child does. Okay. And they have a court-appointed attorney. Okay. Um, hmm. You know, who is supposed to be looking out for our child's best interests. Sure. Not just what they want mm-hmm. to happen, but what would be best for them. And I'm not sure that that always happens. Mm. I think sometimes it's, okay, you really don't want to be on an AUT, then you need to tell them you're going to be compliant Mm. Mm. when you get off. That's not in our child's best interest. Right. Mm. Uh, But it's also incredibly important for a person with, with mental illness to have as much control as they have capacity, capacity, you know, autonomy, um, ability to make decisions, uh, ability to create and maintain a life that they want, you know, is, and I'm not sure, I don't know where the, where the bar is Mm. as far as, okay, so you're, I'm making this up, but you know, you're living in an apartment, you're not really clean, you're not really taking good care of yourself, you're not on medication, you're barely able to keep a job, is that, is that really what you want or is it what you're willing to put up with so that you're not gaining weight and drooling, you know, with on a medication? Hmm. Which so is it, such a, I, it's so hard. And I can imagine, you know, that dilemma of, 
okay, I don't, I know I do better when I'm on this medication, but then here are these awful side effects. Yep. Yep. Does your, does your son recognize that he does better when he's on the meds? I mean, I guess that's a good question. I'm assuming that, but that might not be the case. It's not. Okay. Um, the narrative right now that we hear is that I've been fine for two years. I should be able to get off the AOT. It's like, well, you've been on medication for two years. That's why you've been fine. No, it's not. I'm fine. I've healed myself. So again, there's those, you know, this delusional mm-hmm. aspect mm-hmm. to it. Sure. I meditate. Mm. I'm fine. I have inner strength. You know, I've had an enlightened experience and I don't need the medication. But most recently, they've said, if I taper under, you know, under the doctor's care and you start seeing symptoms, I will go back on the medication. Oh, okay. Um, Unfortunately, they're afraid that if they talk to their psychiatrist about that, the psychiatrist will tell the judge, look, they still want to get off the medication. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know what to think about. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, the, the dilemmas that you are faced with as a parent of an adult child okay. with a very debilitating mental illness, I would okay. say, is that yes. an accurate representation? Yep. Um I mean, I have about a bazillion questions kind of swirling around in my head. And just, first of all, that, that how where you really don't have the ability to control anything that's happening. Not that we do when our children are younger and under 18. I think we kid ourselves into believing that we have control, but... But particularly with an adult child who's not yeah. necessarily making good decisions regarding their health. Right. Well, I guess because I've done a lot of reading on HIPAA and mm-hmm. FERPA, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the uh, post-secondary educational equivalent of HIPAA yes. is FERPA, um, that what I can't do with an adult child if I don't have a release is really significant. And what I could do if my child was 17 or younger was say, we'll go into the hospital. Yes. You can't, you know, unless, and this is the killer, literally, is unless they are deemed an imminent threat of harm to themselves or others. Yes. They can't they can't be involuntarily taken to the hospital. Um and with psychosis, it's not predictable. The behavior isn't predictable enough for that to be a safe and reasonable standard for action. Imminent threat. Okay, so that means somebody is wielding a knife or a gun. That's imminent threat. Okay. Well, by the time somebody who's that mentally unstable is doing that, it's too late. I know of too many cases where 
an adult child was taken to the psychiatrist who barely saw them, said, go ahead, go home, you're fine. The parent was like, I'm really worried about this. And that night or a couple days later, somebody was murdered. Somebody jumped out a window to their death. Mm. Um, somebody was stabbed in the face. Mm. Um, and if that person had been 17, um, that wouldn't have been a standard that the parents, the caregivers would have to live by. Right. Um, so I'm a really strong advocate for the language around involuntary, the, you know, the standard for involuntary hospitalization to be changed in the case of psychotic um, diagnosis or behavior. So when your child was... The first, okay, so let me just back up because I'm thinking <laughs> through the hospitalizations and how they all came to be. <laughs> and there was an element somewhere along the line of an inv involuntary oh, admission. Yeah. yeah, okay, so yes. let's talk about that. And how did that occur? Okay. The first time was, well, our child had voluntarily ad been admitted. And a few days later, changed their mind. But at that point, mm -hmm. the staff had determined that they that it wouldn't be safe. Okay. The second time um, was basically the same idea. They were out of state. The ambulance came, said, "Dude, looks like you're struggling. Can we take you to the hospital get some help?" And they said, "Yes." But once they got there, they're like, "I don't want to be here." But it's too late because they've been assessed and seen to be you know, dangerous to themselves or others, right? And in the third time, our child was home and was having the reaction to Haldol. So we went to the hospital, and I was really thinking to deal with the medication issue. I, I was not thinking our child was going to be hospitalized again. But when we got there, they held him against his will, and he had been saying on the way to the hospital, I'll go to the hospital, but I don't want to stay. I don't want to stay. Don't make, don't make me stay. Mm. He's already had, you know, nine weeks involuntary hospitalization at that point. Mm. Um, but they determined to 5150 him, which is involuntary. Um, and that's when he spent 10 months altogether in okay. the hospital. Um, and... I don't remember exactly the time frame, but when somebody is involuntarily admitted, there's a ticking clock. Um, once that, um, and our our child definitely um, advocated for self, which is a really positive thing. But advocating for something that's not good for you, you know, mm. isn't a good thing. Yeah. Um, and so a couple of times went to court while they were still incarcerated um virtual court because it was still during the pandemic um to advocate for being released and but the behavioral records and the recommendation of the psychiatrist and psychologist treating him um you know demonstrated that that was not in anybody's best interest to release him so you just said incarcerated Oh, I, yeah. Well, that's what it feels like. Okay, I just want to. I, I, I want to. <laughs> Thank of, you. 
yeah, yeah thank move you. Move no, through that no. a little bit. And yeah, no, I I appreciate that. Um, admitted. <laughs> yeah, but I but it, it probably does emotionally. Feel like that's that. what it felt like for our kid. Sure. That's what it felt like. Sure. Well, I mean, anytime you're involuntarily anything, it feels like a, a, some kind of a prison. I would assume. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It was. Mm. It was unbelievably difficult for our child and for us. I want to talk a little bit about that as a parent. <laughs> what were you feeling <laughs> during these incredible, incredibly, I mean, difficult doesn't even, I, that's just too light of a word in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you have a child, when you have a loved one with a serious, chronic serious mental illness, it's a life and death situation every day is what it feels like we live through. Um, when our son was first sick, I thought about killing myself. Oh. Mm. I didn't. I didn't know if I could stand it. Mm. You know, and I recognized, well, I'm not helping anybody by doing that. So mm. I'm going to stick around. And then we started talking to people who understood what we were going through, and that helped a lot. Um, and for a long time, and every once in a while still, when I wake up in the morning and I see the apartment light on, I think, oh, okay, they made it through the night. Mm. Now, at one point, we're sleeping with a hammer under the bed. Mm. I slept in the car, locked all night. Um, uh, put a tracker in the car. Mm. You know, you're both wanting to save your child and balancing that with staying somewhat safe, right? Mm. And I never want to show my child that I'm afraid of them. Mm. My most important role as a parent is to be as informed as I possibly can be about the situation, both what the treatments are, what the side effects are, who the caregivers are, give them collateral information every time there's a change in behavior or a change in caregiver, I mean, a provider. And um, to maintain a parental relationship with my child, a trust bond that isn't ever broken. Mm. In reality, is never broken. Um, they, in a delusional state, might feel that it was broken, but it has never been broken. I've always been honest about what I'm doing, and my child knows that I will always be there for them, and I am, beyond anything else, their advocate. Mm. You know, that's that's who I am right now. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I've read a lot, and there have been some books that I've read that have been really helpful. I'd say probably Xavier Amador's I'm Not Sick and I Don't Need Help is 
one of the books I recommend the most. Okay. Um, it, it, it really talks, it, uh, the author had a, a brother who was mentally ill. You talk also about the support group that you and your husband started pretty early on. Yeah. And yeah. how that has helped you tremendously. That has helped tremendously, um, both to just connect with other people who are struggling, parents who are struggling, or caregivers who are struggling. Um, to be able to offer support is helpful um, because you're reaching out of your own hole, you know, when you're mm. doing that. Um, and then getting the support, you know, reciprocated is also great. Um, I took the NAMI family to family course and I joined the board of our local NAMI um, and has been working with them on you know a bunch of things have been to their conference um, and also uh, working with in a study done by the national or funded by the National Institute of Health through NYU um, where we are looking at um, outcomes for caregivers of people with serious mental illness, first episode psychosis, basically people who've been discharged from on track. Um, when the caregiver is given support and resources, how does that affect outcomes for the loved one? How does that affect outcomes for the caregiver? Mm. So that's a study I'm working with. Um, and that's why I was at the conference. Yeah. And which is, yeah, why, how we met. That sounds like such a landmark study in terms of perhaps um, encouraging states to fund support yep. efforts uh, yep. for families. I'm hearing all of the things that you're talking about that the state of New York has that you know, the wraparound services, um, all these different things. And I think that that is not always the case, depending on where yep. you live. And we have li yep. listeners all over the country. I'm in Kansas City, live in the state of Kansas. And I know there are some services, but you, all the things that you just threw out there, I'm thinking, wow, that's amazing that you have those those services. And there are also, I know, across the country, State hospitals have been closed, you know, closing and closed right. for for many years, decades, right. actually. Right. And right. so the fact that you still have state hospitals in New York for the mentally ill is also incredible. Yeah, I mean, we don't have enough beds. Of and course, our Governor Kathy Hochul just approved a billion dollars for mental health. Um, support and services and infrastructure in our state. Wow. Which is incredible. Incredible. Yes. You know, incredible. Um, what I would say to people, I mean, it, it yes, um, at least theoretically, we have those services, but getting them and having them be quality mm -hmm. is another thing. Okay. Um, the person who is my child's psychologist right now works through the Office of Mental Health. They have 167 clients. Whoa. How do Not you... all of them seen every week. 
Well, you know, sometimes <laughs> it's a hundred and sixty-seven. Wow. Okay, clients. How do you juggle that? That's and they, wow. you know, God bless them. She says it's the best job he's ever had. Oh. Um, wow. Okay. So he loves his work. Um, and you know, some people he just sees every three months for a check-in to see if they're maintaining, you know, in their supportive housing or whatever. But it doesn't, to me, I mean, 167 people is outrageous. It is outrageous. Right? It's outrageous. And I've, um, I've developed what I call fierce advocacy skills um, as a mama bear mm -hmm. um, when our child was not, when the wraparound services, the ACT team, uh, wasn't responding to my calls uh, to give them information or to express concerns that I had, I went down to their office and they had a, the front door is locked because it's a security situation. Mm -hmm. So pounded on the door, pounded, pounded, pounded on the door till somebody came, mm -hmm. let me in. And, you know, I walked right up to the office where the psychiatrist was and pounded on that door. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you've you got to listen to me. I know you're busy. I know mm -hmm. you have a full client list, but you also have my child, yeah. which means you have me. Yep. <laughs> you know, good for you. In another time in that same uh, system, a new psychiatrist was coming on, and I made sure to have his first appointment on his first day on the job. Mm. And I went in with a printed copy of a timeline and collateral information and talked through the whole case history because when a provider is as busy as these people are, they don't necessarily have time to read a chart and attach it to a person and really be reflective around medication and lifestyle and all of that. Right. Um, it's pretty funny. The psychiatrist, when I was done talking 45 minutes later, he said, are you a teacher? Mm. <laughs> I said, well, actually I am. Mm. <laughs> Public school teacher. Love that. Um, he said, well, you seem to know a lot. And I said, well, now you do too. Mm -hmm. um, mm. So, and as a woman, it's taken, I think, an extra amount of fierceness to advocate into a system that was built and maintained by a patriarchy. Mm. Um, I've actually written an article about that that was published in the NAMI National uh, Magazine, I guess, in July. Uh, the idea of people who are more disenfranchised, what it takes to be an effective advocate, hmm. and the emotional work that has to go on in order to step out of your comfort zone hmm. um, and <laughs> recognize you are the expert and ain't nobody going to stop you. Yeah. You can be polite and civil, mm -hmm. But you are not going to be silenced. Mm. And you are the expert in your child and your Absolutely. child's story. And That's right. that is such a powerful belief to hold as a parent that, and I had a pediatrician, my oldest child is 26, and when he was a few months old, he had his first ear infection. And I I've actually written a blog post about this too, but 
my husband, not to throw him under the bus, but he's agreed that I can tell this story. He was an orthopedic resident at the time. Uh And I remember he came home from work that night and I said, hey, Dan, will you, I I think maybe my son has an ear infection because, you know, he keeps shaking his head. And Uh my husband looked at him and he was like, he doesn't have any fever. He's happy. I think he's just fine. The next day he was still shaking his head. So I decided I was going to call the pediatrician and I took him in and guess what? Both of the ears were infected. And she told me that day, she said, you're his mother. You know him better than anybody else. And don't ever doubt your gut. If you think something's wrong, then it probably is. Yeah. And trusting your gut I think is one of the most important things that we as parents can do in regards mm-hmm. to our children and their mental health. If we think there's yep. something wrong, then there probably yep. is. Yep. Yep. This is the first of a two-part series with Megan. My conversation with Megan will continue on episode four, which will be available Tuesday, February 13th. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share these episodes. And thanks again for listening to the Just a Mom podcast.